You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. For those of you here in person, it's so amazing to see so many of you. Um, it's, it's incredible and it's awesome. Uh, it's a reminder that we're nearing the end of this storm and crossing over to the other side as Jesus has promised, right? Which, of course, is what we've been learning over the last couple of weeks, that the Lord keeps his promises to rescue and redeem us, that he's faithful to his own nature, that he's faithful to his word, and therefore he's worth putting our faith and our trust in. And as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke and open our Bibles to the end of Luke 8, we're going we're gonna to get a glimpse of, of, an even, of even more incredible benefits of what it looks like to place our faith in Jesus. We'll get to bear witness to two miraculous moments which show us that as we come to Jesus in faith, he brings supernatural healing and he brings resurrection life. So if you want to turn with me now to Luke 8, we're going to be starting at verse 40 and reading to verse 56. It says, Now when Jesus returned... The crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and, and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. If, I'm out of breath because I had my first soccer game last night after eight months, and um, uh, I'm still out of breath. <sighs> so I apologize. Anyways, o- over the last couple of Sunday evenings, Pastor Blair, who we just saw reading the kid's story, and, and his wife, Carissa Lynn, have been graciously leading a bunch of us parents through a book study on discipling our children to know Christ. And it's been really good and encouraging, so big thank you to them. 
Um, and during the course, though, I found that while all of us parents have our, our different methods of, of discipling our children, which is fine, we also have a few things in common. For example, like how none of us are perfect parents, uh, which means we often have to model repentance to our children, um, which isn't always easy. But also I've discovered for, for all of us parents that, that when our children are in need, we always have time for them. When our children are in need, we always have time for them, no matter what. And, and of course, any loving parent or aunt or uncle or grandparent, for that matter, would be more than ready to set aside whatever they're doing to help their child or their niece or their nephew or grandkid in a time of need, right? But like, if, if my son has a nightmare and comes into our room in the middle of the night, we're not going to ignore him. We're not going to get angry at him for waking us up, and we're not going to just keep sleeping, right? We're, we're, no, we'll comfort him we'll, and we'll pray with him. We'll help him get back to sleep. And, and in the same way, this is the heart of God the Father for his children. And this is what the daughter of Jairus experiences when she's raised from the dead. And, this, and it's what the woman in the crowd experiences firsthand as well, not, not only through getting healed, but in the way Jesus, God incarnate, blesses her and calls her daughter. It's going to be a good morning in the Word, right? Amen? First of all, though, we read at the beginning of the passage that as Jesus steps uh, foot back into Capernaum, uh, he had just gone to the other side, cast the legion out of that man into the pigs and all that crazy story, and then he got kicked out, and then they went back on the boat to the other side. So as he gets back to Capernaum, it says a large crowd had been gathered there waiting for him, probably due to his rising fame as as a teacher and a healer. And, and this crowd is so excited to see him, um, the mob mentality, right, that they start to press in on him. They're pressing in on us, pushing each other, shoving elbows everywhere, right? And, and the picture I'm getting here is Luke's basically describing a mosh pit for Jesus, right? And growing up, going to Christian punk concerts in the 90s, I, I was definitely a part of a few of those. Anyways, fr- from among the throngs of the crowd, among the craziness, we're introduced to two separate people who find their way to Jesus. Two separate people, both from different classes and statuses, both experiencing different circumstances and needs, but both realizing they require the exact same solution. Jesus. So first we meet a man named Jairus, who's made his way through the crowd to fall at Jesus' feet in desperation because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. And he must have been pretty desperate at this point because as the ruler of the synagogue, which was the central hub of Jewish life back then, for him to fall at the feet of Jesus in front of all his wealthy peers and all the students of the law, not to mention the large number of Pharisees who would have been looking on as well because Capernaum's their home base. This, this would have certainly been public humiliation and possible social suicide for Jairus. But as parents know, fathers and mothers will do anything for their children, right? They'd risk anything, their status, their careers, and even their lives. And my guess that he had tried everything and this was his last effort. He's desperate. And secondly, we meet a woman whose name we actually never learn, which speaks to her low social status. Most likely, that's been, it's been placed on her due to the fact that she'd been dealing with a continuous discharge of blood for 12 years. An issue which today could probably be handled by doctors, thank God. 
But back then, as, as Luke would have known, himself being a doctor, it would have been debilitating, probably for a lifetime. And of course, as a Jew, it would have also deemed her ritually unclean and therefore unfit to enter the temple, unfit to take part in religious ceremonies, and unfit to even be touched by others, which was usually the case for any type of situation with blood. And so for 12 years, 12 years, she's not only been sick and weak from constant bleeding, but she probably hasn't been lovingly embraced or touched by anyone except maybe physicians. That sounds incredibly depressing and lonely, right? And, and, in, and in a way, I, I guess we can relate to her mental anguish here because we've all experienced a year and a half of this kind of loneliness and lack of physical contact, right? But, but imagine 12 years of that, of people purposely avoiding her and staying away from her. Not to mention that, that with a large number of Pharisees in the area, we can, we can bet that she'd probably been publicly chastised or pointed out for her uncleanliness more than once. It's no wonder that she'd have spent all her money and all her living on trying to find a cure. But nothing worked. Except now she's heard of this Jesus. This rabbi, this healer. And she decides to secretly go to him for help as, as a last-ditch effort. She decides she'll move quietly and, and unannounced through the crowd toward Jesus to just reach out and touch his clothes, hopefully without bothering him or troubling him with her problems. But hold up. Doesn't, doesn't that description kind of sound Canadian to you? Yeah, especially as Canadian Christians. I think we often have this, this same self-deprecating false modesty, always apologizing for getting in other people's way, right? And never wanting to ask for help or bother anyone with our personal problems. Well, I didn't want to ask anyone for help or, or for prayer because I don't want to put you out or drag you into my mess. Besides, I know you've got more important things to deal with. How many times have we said that? Use that excuse, Right? And, th and this mindset also influences, also influences how we talk to God as well, doesn't it? We, we neglect or pray to come to God, with, or, 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 sorry, we neglect to pray or come to God with, with our issues or our worries or our needs because we've convinced ourselves of, of the satanic lie that we're insignificant to the Lord. And that he cares about other people more than us or that he has more important things to deal with than us. It's like we're always quoting, who am I that he should be mindful of me? Like that's the end of the story. But it's not. Jesus shows us the end of the story. It's that he cares for each one of us to the point of death on the cross. And so we need to stop treating God as if he has favorites and we're not one of them. Do, do we hear that? We need to stop treating God as if he has favorites and we're not one of them. Because the opposite is true. He doesn't have favorites. He cares for each one of us as his own. Each one of us, he loves as much as he loves Jesus. And he desires for each and every one of us, whenever we have a need, to come to him without delay. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See that word confidence and then draw near to him that we may receive mercy and find grace whenever we we're in a time of need. Jesus shows us through this woman, the way, the way he helps this woman, that he wants us to come to him, to cast our burdens on him, to draw near to him, to take refuge in him, to find mercy and grace in him, to pray to him and depend on him as confident children before a father who will do anything for them. The woman in the crowd didn't yet believe she was worthy of this. But she did believe that Jesus could heal. And so she secretly comes behind him and just reaches out and through the crowd, probably, right? And, and just touches the fringes on his robe. And she's healed of her bleeding immediately. This this moment was in and of itself a miraculous and powerful moment which displayed the power and authority of Jesus over those who come to him by faith. But yet, the most powerful moment of all is what Jesus does next. He stops. He stops. Think of this. Even though Jairus' daughter is in dire need of help, even though it's an urgent situation for a very important public figure, yet Jesus stops. He stops for this lowly woman who no one else would ever stop for, and he asks, who, who touched me? And his disciples, like usual, are clueless to what's going on, right? They, they don't get why Jesus would stop. They're like, Master, they say in confusion, that the whole crowd is pressing in on you. They're all touching you which is a lesson in and of itself, right? Everyone's touching Jesus, but only one reaches out in faith and gets healed. In fact, he's, he's perceived that power has gone out from him. And so he wants to know who it was. Spoiler, spoiler alert. He knows who it is because he's got God incarnate, but it seems as though he's actually giving the woman a chance to come to him herself and testify before the crowd. We can probably assume that she's conflicted here, though. Overjoyed that she's been healed, but yet scared out of her mind because she thinks she's going to get in trouble for what she did. She didn't have permission to do it. She thinks she's going to get in trouble. And everyone in the crowd seems to think that as well because they're all like denying they touched him too. No, it wasn't me, that even though they're all touching him, Right? And when the woman finally does come forward, she comes forward with trembling and she falls at his feet admitting what she did and what happened as if she's waiting to be reprimanded. And I, and I feel like in the same way, so many people have this opinion of God, afraid of him or hesitant to come to him with their sin or with their troubles. They have this idea that he's going to roll his eyes at us or even punish us for interrupting him with our petty needs and our prayers. But as a father myself, let me say that I'm, I'm actually more saddened and, let's be honest, frustrated when my kids choose not to come to me or refuse to tell me what's bothering them or what's going on with them because they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble or annoy me. You know, especially when I can tell something's wrong because I want to know so that I can help them and comfort them 
They don't have to fear me in telling me that. And the woman will quickly find out this truth, a truth with which John writes in 1 John 4.18, when he says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. What this means simply is that through Jesus, through his love, we don't have to be afraid to come to God as we are. His love has time for us all and even draws us into his arms with assurance and mercy and grace. And, and we see that here, right? Jesus wants to know who touched him, touched him, not, not to condemn her for her actions and, and definitely not to embarrass her or shame her in front of the crowd, but rather to publicly bless her, to reassure her in front of everyone that coming to him in her time of need wasn't a punishable act of selfishness or a bother to him, but a true and pure act of courageous faith. That it's what we should all be doing in our time of need. Going to the Lord with confidence to find help. And so after the woman shares her testimony of faith and healing, trembling in front of the whole crowd, Jesus says to her from Luke 8, 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. What a simple yet incredibly significant and powerful declaration over her. He calls her daughter. This is a reminder and, and an assurance that those who come to Jesus by faith are not only healed, but adopted into the kingdom of God as children of God. And, and calling her this, we, we can assume, would have been extremely touching and, and, and significant for her as, as someone who'd been fending for herself and, and probably without family and friends for 12 years. For 12 years, she was lonely cast out of society, and now she's a daughter of the Most High God. I'm sure her heart was crying out in joy, with the same joy of John who declares so beautifully and passionately in 1 John 3-1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. She discovers this love in Jesus. In Jesus, we see this love. It's Jesus who intentionally speaks this truth into her heart. A reminder for her that she matters to God, that she's significant to him, that he loves her as a child. All because she came to him with that childlike faith. And here again, we, we can see the difference between the crowd and her. It's not, the difference is not her social status. The difference is not her uncleanliness. It's her faith. That's what sets her apart. It's her faith. Of course, we need to remember that it's not the size of faith that matters. Her faith looked pretty small, right? Our faith can be as small as a mustard seed, Jesus tells us, but the, it's the object of our faith which makes all the difference. 
As Warren Wearsby writes, we may not have strong faith, but we do have a strong Savior, and he responds even to the touch of a garment. And then finally, he tells her, go in peace. Go in shalom. Shalom means completeness and, and wholeness in life. And so let's not misinterpret. This, this declaration isn't just about the fact that, that she's been physically healed, which is, which is awesome. But shalom goes even deeper than that. Right? Shalom, again, is, is an all-encompassing wholeness. A spiritual, physical, mental, and emotional wellness. It's eternal. It assures us in our, our identity and gives us everlasting and supernatural joy and peace and rest in the presence of God. It's the very completeness of life that we search and long for as humans. A completeness which, which was previously only available in the Garden of Eden and in the presence of God before sin ruined everything. But now Jesus is telling her that she can now experience it. That because of her faith in him, she can now be made spiritually whole and complete in his love. And on that end, we, we can't overlook the fact that she reached out and touched Jesus' robe, yes, but, but she didn't just touch it anywhere. It says she touched the fringes. She touched the fringes. And this is incredibly significant. And she may not have known that herself. She may have, she may not have. But there's a reason that Luke mentions it in the passage. And I'll tell you why. According to the law of Moses, every Jewish person had to have specific fringes or tassels on each on at least one of their garments, sorry, which in Hebrew are, Hebrew are called zitzit. And, and they wore them as a reminder of all the commandments of God so that they would remember to obediently keep them. Numbers 15, 38 to 39 says, Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments and put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you may remember all the Lord's commands and obey them and not prostitute yourselves by following your own heart and your own eyes. So see the symbolism there. The, the tassels represent the obedient and complete fulfillment of the law. Right? They represent following God with perfect holiness. They represent that shalom with God. And as we now know, Jesus is the only one who could and does accomplish this. And not only did he accomplish it, that perfect obedience, but he, did, he does it on our behalf. He did it on our behalf. And he actually set aside his deserved glory for his obedience in order to take the weight of our sin upon himself at the cross so that we could instead be covered in his righteousness instead, in his holiness, so that we could be made complete according to the law, no longer condemned in our sins. And so basically then by reaching out and touching the tassels of Jesus' clothes, it's like the woman is foreshadowing or even acknowledging that he's the only righteous one that he's the fulfillment of the whole law, and that then he alone holds the authority to heal and give new life, to make us complete in his love. And again, she receives this, and it's an invitation which is available to all of us. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 29, Jesus says to all of us, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so accept his invitation to come before him. Every minute, every hour, lay down your burdens and your needs at, at the cross. Exchange them with his rest, his shalom. Don't hesitate. Don't, don't believe the lie that he doesn't want to hear from you or help you. Because he does, and he has. He always has time for you. But now you might be thinking, like I'm sure Jairus was, that while he may have stopped for this woman, that also means he's, he's delaying helping this man and his daughter. But that's also part of the lesson here. Yes, the Lord always has time for us, but at the same time, his timing is always perfect. Whether the answer to our prayer comes 12 years from now or one hour later than we expected, it's always perfect. And he never fails us. Though the person from Jairus' household who then showed up to inform him that his daughter had already passed certainly didn't think that, right? He figured it was too late. He figured they didn't need to bother Jesus anymore. And again, and in the same way, how often do we tell ourselves this as well? Ah, it's too late for me. I won't bother Jesus with my problems because I'm too far gone or the the problems can't be fixed anymore. It's too late or God didn't come through when I wanted him to. No, Jesus always has time for you. And in the same vein, his timing and answering our prayers and helping us in our time of need is always the right time. Nothing and no one is ever too far gone that he can't turn it for good for those who love him according to his purpose. Right? Not even death can prevail against his saving power, which Jairus will soon find out. And Jesus doesn't waste any time in making sure he knows this. Right? He, he turns to him and encourages him with a word of hope. Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. Just like he just taught the woman. Don't fear. Believe, and she will be well. Not easy for Jairus to do, though. I'm sure right after hearing his daughter had just died, and the rest of his household and friends are already in mourning, which was a big to-do back then. Everyone from the neighborhood would show up and weep and cry and comfort the family. And For every single one of them, It was too late for the girl to be helped. But it wasn't too late for Jesus. For Jesus, she was only asleep. And of course, they all laugh at him when he he tells him that, which would have been such a weird sight to see. They're all basically at this, this funeral, this wake or whatever. Everyone's weeping one second, and then in the next, they're laughing at him. That'd be kind of creepy. Wouldn't it? They're all like, oh, the daughter. <laughs> like, what? That's so weird. But they're laughing because, because healing someone is one thing. Sure. But bringing them back to life, that's another. That's impossible because everyone knows that death is final. But nothing is impossible for Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And so after sending everyone out except her parents and and three of his disciples, namely James, Peter, and John, the usual suspects, he kneels 
at her bed, takes her by the hand, and he declares, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. And she does. Her spirit returns to her body, and Jesus then instructs them to give her some food, evidence that she's been physically resurrected from death. And this not only shows us his authority over death, but it also shows us the, the, the heart of mercy and compassion of Jesus towards God's children. Which is visible throughout all the Gospels, right? There's even a song written about it that I used to sing as a kid. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. He's never too busy to help and listen and bless and comfort them and rescue them. And speaking of which, it would be, it would be a miss if I didn't take this opportunity while I'm pointing out how precious each and every child is to God. If I didn't also mention how precious those 215 indigenous souls are to the Lord, along with all the other ones we don't know about yet. Jesus knows about them. Their graves may have been unmarked, but Jesus knows each of them by name. And he weeps over this atrocity, over their deaths. And I also want to say that for those who are a part of it, and really to all those who hinder any of God's children, I can't help but think of Jesus' words from Matthew 18, 5-6, where he holds no punches. And he says, And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. So we see the heart of Jesus there. And then he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. how much he loves his children. And the Catholic Church and the government at the time failed miserably and fatally in both heeding this warning and in representing the heart of God to his children. And so I'm thankful then that we can also hope in the truth that God, while he's a God of grace, is also a God of justice. Because instead of caring and loving the indigenous community, instead of laying down their life, Instead of laying down their lives for these children, instead of serving them and learning from them and teaching them how to know and worship Jesus within the context of their own beautiful culture, right? instead of showing them how precious they are to the Lord just as they are, they chose instead to culturally assimilate, oppress, abuse, punish, starve, and colonize them. This is not the way of Christ. This is not the heart of the Father. This is pure evil. Thank God for the Reformation. But for each and every one of those children who are wronged, who are abused, who are malnourished, who are unceremoniously buried, I know with all my heart that they live in the hope of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Just like the girl who, who, who Jesus raised from the grave. Not because 
she was the daughter of Jairus, but because she was a child and, and the daughter of the Most High God. I truly believe that, that like her, these children will find and know eternal life in the presence of the Creator, and all will be made well because of the cross. Because ultimately, that, that's the primary truth and hope which we're reminded of and assured of in this passage. That for every single one of God's children, disease and death no longer have the final say. These two miracles are meant to foreshadow and point us to this final hope. To the promise of new and resurrection life. To his victory over sin and death, which he accomplished and won for us at the cross through his own death and resurrection. And yes, miracles still do occur today. I believe that Jesus can and does still heal, but we also know that it doesn't always happen the way we expect or pray it will, does it? I know that most of us have experienced this scenario probably many times where we've prayed for healing, but, but we just don't see it. Or we've prayed for someone to live, and yet they still die. So let, let this be a reminder, though, that this doesn't mean Jesus hasn't answered your prayer. It doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. If you went to Jesus, that means you already have enough faith. The point of all of this is to assure us that he has answered your prayer. Even if we may not experience it this side of heaven. Th th think of this. We all know that the woman from the passage would probably get sick again and that she eventually died. Right? We all know that the 12-year-old girl would eventually die again as well, hopefully of old age this time, or else... She'd still be alive today. And I say this not to be a downer, but to remind us that we have a better and more eternal hope. And that is the point. Through Jesus, we're never without hope, even in death, because we know that death and disease no longer have the final say, that for all of God's children, death no longer holds its sting. He defeated its power at the cross, so now our death is only, is only like going to sleep. And when we awaken, it'll be into the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth, when there will be no more sin, no more weeping, no more pain, no more disease, and no more death. First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so as children of God, we have this hope of resurrection and life. We know with confidence that death is no longer final, that we will spend eternity in the presence of our Father. And in the same way, we also have that promise and hope of healing. Whether or not we experience it in this life or not, we know we'll experience it in full when we meet Jesus on that day. As it says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Notice it says, by his, by his, it doesn't say by his wounds you will be healed. It says, by his wounds, you have been healed. 
That means we can claim this with certainty at all times. Even when we're injured or sick or debilitated, the truth still remains because this is about the healing of our soul and the certainty of his victory, which will one day know in full. It's a completeness with God. It's a filling of his spirit and a restoration from the brokenness of sin. It's, being, it's about being brought from death to eternal life. It's about being spiritually born again as sons and daughters of the Lord, heirs to his glorious kingdom, living in his presence and his love and grace and rest, his shalom. And so while there's so much bad news and, and, and hardship and disease and tragedy and death in this broken and sinful world and in our lives, we have the evidence and the tangible hope and the revelation, and the seal of his spirit, that Jesus is the good news given to us by our loving Father, who breaks through it and stands in victory over it all. Jesus won this victory for all of God's children. And he wants us to come to him to receive it with confidence, with faith, And not as a last resort, but first of all, anytime we're in need, to give us the comfort and the wisdom and the grace and the healing. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. Each of his children are precious to him. So no matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from, whether a lowly and lonely person who no one pays attention to or a rich and religiously devout person in society, man or woman, young or old, slave or free, you are important to him. No matter what your need is, whether it's healing, whether it's forgiveness, whether it's guidance or wisdom or whether it's something that's big or small, dire or not, you're not bothering God by asking him and you're certainly not bothering other believers by asking them to pray with you. You're his child. We're his children, daughters and sons of God. And he wants us to be like a child who who would wake up his mom in the middle of the night just because he's thirsty or like a child who interrupts her father's Zoom meeting because she needs a Band-Aid. Right? Again, the cross draws us to proclaim what it says in 1 John 3-1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the very fact that we can call you our Father, Lord, is incredible. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for what he he did for us at the cross, for the love that he showed us, that he gives to us freely, that washes away our sins so that we can be adopted into your kingdom as your children, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded as your children that we can come to you in any moment, at any time, for any circumstance, 
And we can come to you with confidence through the blood of Jesus, through the victory of Jesus, knowing that he has already won. We can come to you in confidence knowing that you care about us, that you love us. that you will hear us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who, who is feeling like they don't matter. Lord, I pray that you would free them from that bondage right now, in Jesus' name, that they would know that they do matter to you, Lord, that they would come to you, that they would fall at your feet, not with trembling, but with thanksgiving, that they would receive your yoke, which is easy and light. That they would receive your shalom. Heavenly Father, I know that we've all had a trying last year and a half. But I thank you that you've been with us through it all, whether we realize it or not that you care for us, that you love us, that you went to the cross for us. So Lord, we thank you and we give you all the glory.